Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 43 and 44, which begin with Gregor's airship rising into the air and end with the Mariner accepting Helen's terms. Kicking off this week, we see that Gregor's gas bag is very much nearing full capacity. Words are falling out of my head constantly. And achieving buoyancy. Exactly. And the gondola is beginning to rise. And I appreciate that Gregor had the time to tie all four big ropes to his gondola and prepare that for flight. What I'm not sure about is why there's no hook and latch system built into the gondola to keep it from floating away. This is all about that for me. This scene that takes up a good portion of these two minutes. I'm all like, why didn't you just tie it down? Tie it to anything. You have so many points in that whole lab that you could tie it on to. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you? It's a <laughs> tough one. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but he's a scientist. He's not supposed to need hindsight. He's supposed to be more well-prepared than that? Yes. He's supposed to be methodical about his work. That is a defining characteristic of scientists. What's the saying? Like, if you're not writing it down, then you're just goofing around. Exactly. Well, you know what? He's just been goofing around this whole time because he has had no method to his madness. I can only assume that he tied on each of the four ropes and then before he had the opportunity to tie it down, he remembered, oh, I need to tell Helen and Enola that they need to get to the tower. And so he spent all of that time going up to the top, popping his head out, yelling at them, climbing all the way down. And I can only assume that he has just now arrived back at the bottom. I imagine, though, that those water cases that he's futzing around with probably would help to keep the gondola weighted down. Just throw a few more buckets on there. But no, that gondola is made to hold three people. That's very and true. And still be buoyant. You'd have to add quite a lot. So he would need to add more than three people's worth of weight just to hope to hold it down. And that might not even work. He has proven himself to be a mediocre scientist. <laughs> I'm going to be critical of his methods because they failed so badly in this one aspect that he didn't tie it down. Does he know math? Did he do the math to know how big the balloon bag needed to be to carry all three of them? Honestly, I doubt it. If he can't read, can he do math? I don't know. So who knows how much weight he would have needed to hold it down? Getting outside of the internal logic of the characters, <laughs> I really appreciate how this scene highlights Michael Jeter's athleticism because he is playing an older man, but he is not himself an old man. 
Yeah, I definitely like wondered about that and wondered about stunt performing and whatnot, namely the jump. Okay, so the initial hop on is him. Like he starts off in the scene, we can see he jumps off, grabs the edge, and then he drops back down to his legs because he only has to fall like a foot and a half. Him running up the tower and then making the leap from the walkway to the airship gondola, that is absolutely a stuntman. They would not let him do that right. on his own. And it looks incredibly smooth. I expect I would handle it much more poorly. I'm not great with heights, but in a situation like this, I don't think that would really stop me. But I would still pause, take a moment, make sure I have good footing, and then jump. Like, just for a moment. Just a pause. Nope, he does not even. He just leaps right off with a beautiful jump, catches it, no problem. Yeah. (laughs) What really disappoints me is that this is a nautical society. Hooks are an everyday occurrence to these people, and so is rope. So it would make sense, logically, that maybe there would be a boat hook nearby that he could grab on or a harpoon that he could toss onto the gondola, something with a rope attached, because the one thing he needs to do is to keep it from floating away, and one way that you can keep it from floating away is tying it down. I'm beating a dead horse at this point, which in Waterworld is very hard to find. (laughs) So much hinges on this moment. The entire rest of the plot hinges on Helen and Enola not getting on that balloon. So the script had to make it happen. Even though there are plenty of ways that the situation could have been fixed. It's one of those script things that has to happen. Mm -hmm. So frustrating. Yeah. So Helen and Enola show up and Gregor sends them running on the walkways up the tower and they get all the way to the top before Gregor pulls out a rope and does one of the worst tosses I think I've ever seen. Oh, it is horrible. Like, most of the rope doesn't even leave his feet, and the entire thing gets caught up on the propeller at the back of the gondola. Yeah, two options could have been done better. There was more walkway that they could have walked around and come to the side of him instead of to the back of him. Yeah. That way his toss wouldn't have had to go over that rudder thing. Yeah, you can see in the shot at the left side of the frame, there are more stairs. Yeah, they could have gone up higher. And two, that rope is now dangling. So try again. You don't have to get it over anything. You just have to get it far enough out that its arc of falling would reach them. Uh And then she could grab it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Ugh. In media, quite a lot, especially in discussing movies, we talk about plot armor. Mm -hmm. This failure has plot armor. Nothing is going to prevent this failure. Oh, how much easier this story would have been for Helen, Enola, and Gregor if they had all three gotten away together. For one thing, Kevin Costner would not have been in the rest of this movie. No, he would have been gone. Nobody else beside Helen would have let him out of the cage. Right. And we know... That Gregor meets up with other remnants of the atoll. And it's Gregor who finally figures out the tattoo. The Mariner didn't have anything to do with that, right? Mm-hmm. So is it one of those movies where without the main character, things would have turned out the same in the end anyways? 
Let's see. If the Mariner had not come to the Atoll, the Nord probably still would have seen Enola at the bar. He would have left just the same. The Smokers would have attacked the Atoll. Gregor likely would have bungled his way into launching the airship like this, and Helen and Enola would have been trapped on the Atoll and likely captured by the Smokers almost immediately. Well, yeah, but no, what I'm saying is that if they had made it on, that's true. the if, Mariner is no longer needed. If they hadn't been down at the Organo Barge that morning when the Smokers attacked, they likely would have been in the tower with Gregor already. Yeah, definitely Enola would have been. Mm-hmm. And since Helen had no goods left, because, oh no, the Mariner wouldn't have bought them all. She probably would have been at her bar, but that's also like right there, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. Things would have been different, but if they had made it on to the airship here, I think the ending might be the same as if they didn't make it on and go with the Mariner. Mm -hmm. And it also would have been maybe not as interesting a story to tell, probably not interesting enough to make a movie about it. But the process of being in the airship for who knows how long, finding the remnants of the atoll, coming together to build their little grouping of boats again, those still would have been mildly interesting things to see happen. Certainly not movie worthy, but mildly interesting. Yeah. Gregor is incredibly apologetic as he busts through the ceiling of his tower and we get a very nifty shot looking up through the top of the tower at the fully inflated bag and Gregor dangling underneath it. There is a video on the Atoll YouTube page all about Gregor's airship, and it is explained in that video that all of the shots that you see of the gas bag fully inflated are computer generated. Yeah, you can tell mm -hmm. in this upshot. You can tell it's computer generated. Most of the shots we get of Gregor in the gondola are clever camera tricks depicting him from either on his level or slightly above him, and the gondola is hanging from a crane. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to comment real quick before we leave the lab for good on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Was it just a crappy ceiling, or do you think it was designed to be breakaway oh i think it was absolutely designed to be breakaway okay because this was obviously their plan all along that was alluded to at least one time prior to this scene so i like the idea of a half-assed roof because it's meant to just fall apart mm -hmm. when needed oh and gregor he's floating away and he's reaching out to helen and anola who are standing in a exposed section of wall and he's reaching out to them being oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> i just can't imagine what helen is going through oh, right yeah. now she's dedicated her life to enola and so has gregor and now in this most critical moment they have both failed and that's awful <laughs> it really makes you feel for helen and the situation that she's found herself in yep Luckily for her, Enola is there to shake her on the arm and point at the mostly submerged Mariner there in the bog. And I think Helen very quickly picks up on what Enola seems to be suggesting. Hey, this is a guy. He's got a boat. You think that's where Enola is going with that? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. I thought that Enola was like, hey, the stranger's about to die. We should go help him. It didn't occur to me. I don't think it occurred to her saying, hey, that guy, if he's alive, he can help us. So we should keep him alive. It may be that she meant both things and we're just reading into it differently. Yeah. But I definitely feel like, oh, look, there's the mariner in his cage is a if we save him, he might save us situation. Which is certainly where Helen goes quite quickly. Mm -hmm. From Enola, I read a more childlike observation of this man whom I have observed before is in trouble and is going to die. We shouldn't let him die. That is what was highlighted in the book, that Enola said we should do something. Yeah. That was weeks ago, though. (laughs) It's been a long time since I've read from the book. What can I say? The smokers are continuing their rampage in the atoll. We get a little insert shot of smokers fighting atollers and smokers on their jet skis firing their guns. I love in the one shot where... You've got an atoller on the dock, and he is advancing on an atoller who seems to be reaching the end of the dock and losing his balance so that the smoker picks up his leg and is meant to do a full-on kick, but where the way the atoller is falling, he just ends up nudging him with the toe of his boot to tip him over into the water. Yeah, I saw that too. I actually had to watch it a couple times because there's a certain awkwardness in the way the atoller falls into the water. I thought maybe it was a mannequin. (laughs) But I watched it a couple times closely, and I don't think it's a mannequin. No, I'm quite sure that's just a stunt actor. Yeah, the stunt actor was probably told to, okay, just stay still, prepare to get kicked into the water. And so we did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stayed very still to be gently tapped into the water. (laughs) When you feel the foot on you, fall in. (laughs) That works. Yeah. So let's go back to the gas barge real quick, because the deacon is there, and he is lining up a putt. I imagine that he does a lot of putting, not a lot of driving, considering that golf balls are likely rare and hard to come by. This golf ball is weird looking. It looks to be encrusted Mm -hmm. with goo, except for a stripe that's probably where it's been hit in the past. There appears to be a reddish-brown actual golf ball so yeah it looks like this was probably salvaged from under the water where it had been for quite some time and it started being grown over with all sorts of sea life why you wouldn't clean it off is beyond me that's probably about as clean as you could get it the smokers don't strike me as the kind of people that have a lot of good cleaning supplies i think the only reason that the deacon isn't covered in soot right now is because he doesn't have to be Also, this behavior of putting a golf ball in your office setting, this is his office setting, Mm -hmm. is a power move. And I'm wondering if he gives a crap about it or if he's doing it because he has seen portrayals of people using it as a power move from the past. Does he give a crap about golf is what I'm asking. (laughs) I think the answer is no, he doesn't. I'll bet you he has a picture from a magazine or like an old movie that somehow has survived where he has seen a scene of a powerful man practicing his putting Mm -hmm. and goes, huh, he looks powerful. I'm going to do that too. I think that's exactly what it is. 
he got himself a putter and he got himself some golf balls and he got himself some reference material from before the deluge. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? That's going to be me. I'm going to be the guy with the golf club doing the casual golf thing. And he's seen atolls get destroyed so many times over that at this point he's just on autopilot. Yeah. And the battle does seem to be going well. Mm-hmm. There have been very few casualties so far, not necessarily of people for the smokers, but of equipment. Very few casualties of note. The deacon looks up and he sees the airship floating over the atoll and he very casually nudges one of his flag boys and just says, shoot him. (laughs) Just do that. I appreciate his style of command. It's very... Like, oh, I see a problem. I'm going to give a command that solves the problem. Mm -hmm. He doesn't flip out because something unexpected happened. He's not short-tempered or crazy, at least not right now. There are some other portrayed in media commanders of various sorts who, when presented with an unexpected problem, lashes out and blames somebody. And he doesn't do that. He's like, oh, yeah, take care of it. It's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. I can fix this. I am maintaining my advantage. He's got the superior firepower and the superior numbers. He's got nothing to worry about. He just says, shoot him, and the gunboat moves to accommodate. Yeah. What they don't plan for is the jet skier that ramps up into the air and makes the mistake of flying straight into the pathway of the bullets, exploding in a fireball that lands on the Orcano Parch. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's a friendly fire incident. Nobody seems to really care that much, though. No. Because it is now a flaming bomb already Mm midair. It is going over that wall. It's going to hit something. It's going to set things on fire. So honestly, it's doing just as good a job on fire as it would have done if it had put another individual into the atoll. So same difference. So the Hellfire Gunner, he stops firing once he explodes that jet ski, and we get an insert shot of him adjusting his goggles. I assume that he saw a fireball and thought, oh, I hit my target. Problem solved. No worries. Yeah. It's a little taste of the Hellfire Gunner maybe not being the best judge of when he should stop firing. He doesn't seem to be the sharpest crayon in the box. Yeah. But it's also a call forward, be like, hey, remember this detail because it's going to become really important later on in this fight. Yeah. Which I appreciate. I appreciate those little things where when you watch it a second time, you're like, oh, that's a clue about what's going to happen. That's really nifty. Oh, we see he is dumb. We see small evidence that he is dumb before we see big evidence that he is dumb. Because most people aren't just dumb once. Most people (laughs) are dumb all the time. Multiple instances of dumbness. Yeah. (laughs) I like how the jet ski falls down onto the Organa barge and sets everything on fire. It's very cool. The visual of the flames spreading, and it'll be a nice backdrop for the stuff that we're going to talk about next week. And it's nice to focus on the fire instead of focusing on the next 15 seconds of the rest of these minutes, because... The Mariner goes under the muck, and all hope seems to be lost because he is pawing awkwardly at this padlock, and suddenly we get this really low angle looking up at the sky through the barge, and boom, Helen is there. Thank goodness 
for Helen, certainly for him, but also for me, because she gave me a safe place to pause during this scene so that I could consider it and review it. (laughs) Because most places to pause are not safe, are very not safe. Very gross. Very gross. (laughs) Because there's nothing you hate more in this movie than the green sludge of the bog. It really is the thing that I hate the most. And this moment of the green sludge is the worst because he is submerged and then he comes up and his face is all covered. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful that when he goes to speak, they show him coming back up and his face is all covered with the muck. And then they cut away before they cut back to him and he speaks. And when they cut back to him, his face is cleaned off quite a bit. So that when he actually opens his mouth to talk, there's not a sputter of green goo or drips going into his mouth. Really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet that Kevin Costner also appreciated that. Yes. We have a long history here on the Mad Max Minute of people in perilous situations making deals for stuff to happen. And here we get Helen pulling the Mariner up out of the muck and she says, if I let you out of here, you're taking us with you. And the Mariner, he is literally up to his ears in this bog stuff. And he takes a moment to consider it before he finally says, sure. Yeah, he really does. He's not really in a situation where you can negotiate. Right. He is going to drown. And I think that does speak a little bit about how the rest of the movie goes. This moment, Helen has the power Mm -hmm. over his life. Much like further down the road, the Mariner has the power over Helen and Enola's life. And in this moment, you think that since she has the power now, that she's going to keep it. And he is unwilling to let her have that power. And we see that play out by he then takes that power from her later on. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of Max and the compound dweller who was pinned by the arrows to the side of his buggy when Max showed up and he's like, hey, I want to get into the compound. I want gasoline. And the guy, Nathan, and we know he's Nathan because his name gets shouted so many times, but Nathan says, sure, you bring me back. I'll get you whatever you want. And... Max makes it very clear in that moment that he's just there for the gasoline. He doesn't care about their plight or anything like that. He just wants the gas. And in this situation, the Mariner is essentially Nathan. He's in peril. He needs help. But he's also that Max character. Even though Helen is currently in the Max situation here. Like, I don't think we've had a situation in the Mad Max movies where someone propositions Max in this way, like to save him. He's always the one making the deal and asking, like even with the auntie entity thing, like he approached her looking to make a deal. Yeah. And when he needed to be saved in the desert, there was no deal. He was just saved. Mm -hmm. The waiting ones didn't ask for anything in return. Characters like this, like the Mariner are used to being in a certain position of power, a physical power over the people around them. They Mm -hmm. are smarter, they are stronger, they are better equipped, that they hold other people's lives in their hands. And yeah, it's hard to be on the flip side of that. 
I know that there are coming up scenes where Helen is talking to the Mariner about her expectations now that they've gotten away from the Atoll, and I definitely don't want to take away from those conversations. But she has a lot of expectations when she's making this deal. She looks at this situation, she's like, okay, I am literally saving his life. And so in her mind, I imagine that she sees a Wookiee life debt situation. That he will now be so grateful that she saved his life, that he will do literally anything for them. She does. And this moment should have been a clue to her that that's not going to be the case because he thinks about it for so long. He hesitates. (laughs) That he really does not want to be in this position of owing her and will perform minimally. (laughs) This is just like those would-you-rather type games where it's, here's a good thing, and here's an awful caveat. And you've got to really think, okay, well, if I want to, say, never get sick again, but every time a bell rings, your pants shrink two sizes. (laughs) And you've got to think, gee, do I want to live my life never being able to wear pants comfortably again? without the fear of them suddenly shrinking on me? Yeah. How much is it worth to you to get your desires? Mm-hmm. And I think it says a lot about the Mariner, that he takes a moment to think about, is it worth helping these people for my life? Part of him would rather die than to help these people. <laughs> All right. So die in the bog or face the possibility of having to spend time with other people. Mm. Yeah. That's a tough choice, buddy. (laughs) It says so much about him. He hates people so much. At least one thing's for sure. After this is all done, he can never use the phrase, oh, I'd rather die than have people on my boat. Because, well, you you proved that wrong in this moment. Right, you made that choice. Yeah. Even his phrasing in his response of just, sure, is noncommittal, but... For Helen, like, okay, it's going to have to be enough. Good enough. Yep. And so with that being said, Helen leans away from the cage. We watch from below as she reaches off to the side. And the clip cuts off before we see what she has grabbed. However close she is to the walkway, whatever sort of situation she's at, the tool is close by. All the times that we've seen this cage floating in the muck, it's been in the middle of the pool, not necessarily close by the walkway. So what I have to wonder is, is Helen on this cage? Did she leap from the walkway to the cage in order to be at this angle? Well, I did think that she was on the cage, which would only accelerate its sinking. Mm -hmm. And she would have brought... The tool that she grabbed with her. Yeah. If she leapt from the walkway to the cage, she would have brought whatever tool with her. But she does reach to the side. So that makes it feel like the cage is right next to the walkway. Her tool is still sitting on the walkway and she needs to reach for it. Rather than she and the tool jumped to the cage. Ah, <sighs> I think there is some incontinuity happening. <laughs> I think the biggest incontinuity that I see is that when in last week's episode, we see the smoker, he flew through the air on the jet skis and he hit the side of the cage 
and the cage fell back. And in the background of that cage is the earthen sides of the organo barge. The walkway is not there. So using the orientation of the mariner, his left is the tree where the jet ski blew up in this week's minute. So when we do the shot of Helen and Enola looking down from the tower, we suddenly find that the cage has done a full 180 and the earthen embankment is now on the Mariner's right. So between minutes 41 and 42 and minutes 43 and 44, that cage has spun and is now facing an entirely different direction. It's no nearer to the walkway than it was. It's still in the middle of the bog, but it's moved. In fact, I would dare say that there are more solid parts of the bog than the one that he's floating in that Helen could have traversed. It would have been very mucky, very muddy. Yeah, much like a swampy area, some parts are more muddy and some parts are more liquidy. Yeah, I think it would have been nifty if... Before we see Helen just appear, we saw a hook fall on top of the cage. Because I'm all about hooks these last couple of episodes. Hooks attached to ropes. If they had hooked the cage, dragged it over to the walkway, and then had the cage right there. I would have liked that. Because then he would have been out of immediate danger, and Helen could have said, Oh, you don't want to take us? All right, well... Then she pushes him back back into the bog. Yeah. It's like a sampling of the service. Yeah. But as far as keeping everything concise and well-packed, sure, this works fine. It does work fine. If we had our way, we would rewrite the movies we watch in so many different ways. (laughs) So on that note, we're going to put a pin in this. We will come back next week. We will see the Mariner freed from his activity, and which point he will spring into action, sending Helen and Enola to open the gate while he gets his trimaran ready to move. But the smokers have yet another explosive weapon up their sleeve to completely swamp the atoll. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 22. See you next time.